Hello and welcome to the Journey to the Heart podcast. My name is Torn Lokes. I'm a singer-songwriter from the Yukon Territory, Canada, and my current mission is to paddle a canoe across America from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean while learning more about what happiness, community, connection, self-empowerment, as well as finding and living your passions and dreams means to different people I meet along the way. An update on my journey so far. After an amazing stay in the little town of Kathlamet, I am back on the river road and have been paddling for the last couple days up the Columbia towards the town of Longview, Washington. While the canoe kite has been helpful at times, these last couple days have really shown me how powerful the currents and tides can be on this river, especially when paddling against them. Some days when making very little distance, as discouraging as this may be in the moment, it is invaluable in giving me appreciation for hard-won progress in all its forms, and is also applicable to so many other areas of life. The effort and challenges out there can also provide moments of beautiful peace and tranquility. After paddling in the late evening across a choppy channel filled with high winds and tides and with big ocean-bound vessels, I reached the town of Longview, Washington, and was rewarded on the far banks with a majestic sunset. Those feelings and moments are hard to fully put in words. The following is a conversation with my host in Longview, Chris Algaro, who is a scientific technician for the Washington State Department of Fish and Wildlife. Originally from New Orleans, Chris moved to the Northwest to live his dream of spending time researching, studying, and working in wild spaces. An optimistic, insightful, and passionate human being, I really enjoyed speaking with him about life, our relationship with the natural world, self-actualization, and community. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing really well today. Yeah, well, tell, tell me a bit more about yourself. Well, I, uh, I am a technician for Beaver Creek Hatchery uh, on the biology side of the Department of Fish and Wildlife for Washington State. I've held that position for about three years now. Right on. And, uh, and what, uh, what brought you to... Uh... Washington. What what do you love about this area? Well, man, I'm I am from the south, from New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, yeah, a, a lot of things brought me up here. But usually, I would I would go with the climate. It's uh, it's a little more tolerable. It's nice having four seasons, and when I look out my window and see mountains, it brings me great joy. Yeah. 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 And you and you were talking about your job. Um, clearly, you're spending a lot of time like out in the woods and oh, yeah. and. Right now you're working with salmon, is that right? Yeah, we work with salmon all year on uh, three tributaries to the Columbia River. So we work on the Grays River, Elokuman River, and Skamakawa Rivers. And um, this time of year we're closing out juvenile season. So the out-migration of uh, juvenile salmon is uh, chum are our big focus just because of their life cycle. It makes it a little easier for us to grab them. Uh, in our location, but uh, soon we'll be preparing for spawning ground season, which is when all the salmon come on home, and you know we we get a lot of data that time of year, and that's where I spend the most time out in the in the wild worlds. Yeah, and what's uh, what is it about salmon that you that fascinates you the most? You know, it's it's a unique life cycle for a fish, uh, which I can appreciate. Uh, but I think mostly it's, it's, it's the questions that we still have. 
You know, a lot of the things that we work on on the day-to-day are things that we need for monitoring and not so much questions. You know, things like, hey, this population's not great. Uh, what's causing that? Is it, is it anthropogenically caused, like a dam or overfishing, or is it an issue like, you know, you have too much water at the end of, at the end of a year and all of a sudden your juveniles get kind of buried? Um, but I think what really draws me to the salmon individually is the questions we don't know. It's like, how do they do the things we do? they do? Um, how, do, how do they do them so successfully, come back to the same stream, you know, year after year, generation after generation? Um, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing how they go all the way from the ocean up sometimes thousands of kilometers. Oh, yeah. And how important they are, you know, culturally, ecologically. Um, I know that some salmon, you know, are brought into the woods by bears and other wildlife and end up becoming integrated into the ecosystem. Exactly. Plants grow more prolifically with the nutrients from the salmon. Nothing, nothing as good a fertilizer as a big dead chum salmon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and so you, you've expressed to me how much you enjoy your job. Oh, yeah. And uh, what, what brought you to this line of work? Oh, man, I have been trying to get into this field uh, since I was a small child. <laughs> now, not this specific job, you know, maybe, but I have loved fish and uh, really the whole natural world. I was a Boy Scout all growing up, Eagle Scout now. Um, wow. Yeah, right to, um, to be able to be in the natural world as a part of my job preferably out of the office for greater than 50% has been pretty much my only job goals more so than money for the majority of my life. Um, and when it comes to, you know, the individual, I, I think you got two choices when it comes to a job. You know, you can go for something that allows you to make enough money to do your hobbies and enjoy yourself that way, or equally as successful sometimes you can find a job that you just genuinely love and then maybe reel it in on some of your hobbies. So that's, that's the balance that I've chosen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a powerful perspective to be able to understand and discover what makes you happy and then have the courage to make that something that you do on a daily basis. Yeah. It's, it's, I think the hardest part, honestly, I, you know, finding out who you are is, is difficult for everyone. Just it takes a lot of time to sit with yourself and listen, and, and that's not always easy to do. Um, but I think once you figure out what you want, like, yeah, I think there is a, an impelling force in all of us. Like, oh, I've identified what I want to do, what I want to be, who I am. I'm going to gravitate towards that at top speed. Um, you know, so once I, once I got out of college, I spent six months in South Africa studying great white sharks, uh, as an unpaid intern. Wow. Uh, I spent all of my, all of my very meager resources in the world at the time, just getting over there and participating in the, the internship. But obviously it shot me off on a nice trajectory because there's absolutely nothing on a resume more, uh, interesting than a really good story to tell. And that one I always slip in there, even if it's not particularly relevant, because the interviewer really wants to ask questions about it. And after that, I, I got out of the field. 
I worked in the restaurant industry as a kitchen manager for a couple of years because money was tight and they were offering salary at that level and salary and benefits. So it was hard to pass up, but that lifestyle wears on you after a while. And uh, I tried to get back into the animal field, but the Louisiana Department of Fish and Wildlife is a little smaller, little not as well funded, you know, so there aren't as many jobs, but there are an equal number of avid, young, scientifically minded people who want to help, you know, shape our world in a positive way. So they have a lot of applicants. So I worked at Pennington Biomedical as a research technician for a while in a lab. And after that became intolerable for its own reasons, mostly culling control groups. Uh, I said, I've had enough. And I found a better climate and a better job where I get to spend probably 60 to 80% of my time lost in the woods. Well, well, I feel like it's an important part of that process to be able to do jobs that aren't necessarily up your alley or you have to discover that are not necessarily well suited for you to be able to, you know, have the job that you have now, really appreciate it and have that gratitude on a daily basis often like that journey to get there oh, yeah. is what makes it that much more meaningful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I totally agree. You know, it, it makes it mean more to me, like job satisfaction at an all time high means so much. And I've, I've got friends who are very successful in other fields. My brother is a, a successful lawyer and, you know, whenever we whenever we joke back and forth, it's always like, it's all right, Chris, I'll buy you a boat one day. And it's like, it's all right, bud. I'm, you know, I enjoy my job, at least. You know, uh, it's it, it, it really quite different is. Worlds. Yeah, it's very different <laughs> worlds. We have a, an interesting fraternal relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think sometimes it's nice to have siblings that are just when, when your siblings are so different from one another. Yeah, you get to really bond in a unique way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you get to bond, you get to see the similarities in the differences, you know, uh, everybody has things about their job or about their life that may not be, you know, their cup of tea, it may not be perfect. And, you know, you, you call your family and, and like to gripe and moan and they can relate maybe not to what you're doing, but to having that frustration. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have that diversity because it teaches you a little more about the wider world of things. Yeah, I liked how you said that similarities in the differences. Yeah. Rather than similarities and differences. It's like there's a lot of truth to that. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of comparison between my, myself and that that's one of the ways I think I think a lot of us learn that way, but I can only really, you know, particularly attest for myself is some of the ways that I learn kind of the biggest lessons are by comparing myself in this moment to myself in a different moment or someone else in this moment and try to learn by looking at the differences between two situations yeah yeah, yeah. and i think like a certain amount of realizing that we all have unique gifts and unique perspectives in life you know that if you have that perspective while also recognizing that we all have unbelievable potential yeah then it's coming from a place of abundance. Oh, totally. You know, um, that's another, you know, uh, we, we talk about comparative differences right now, you know, coming from the South and living up here, uh, you get kind of dipped into different baths of, of opinions, just whole worlds. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, not that, you know, New Orleans is an island in the South, but when you venture out, you know, it's, 
it's somewhat ubiquitous. The opinions, the feelings, you know, the, the experiences that you have with people, they can be somewhat ubiquitous because you're in that bubble. You've always been in that bubble. Mm. You know, moving up here, it really exposes you to a huge diversity, you know, especially like maybe not so much in some of the rural areas. That is what it is. But yeah. I've met some really interesting people who do wildly different and crazy things, you know, from my own experience. Like, even when you and I were talking last night, um, just hearing your experiences and your journey has just, it's filled me with this joy, not because I am, like, jealous or living vicariously through you. It's because I know that there are still people out there who who travel constantly and try and journey and do new things. And, I mean, it, it is like a... I don't know if you're familiar with the the fiction novel um, uh, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. I haven't heard of it. But there is a, a theme throughout that the way you treat travelers, tinkers in, in this specific book, but the way you treat travelers and the way that they experience the world, it has this kind of uh, a different karmic effect. You know, it goes farther when you treat a traveler. You know, you invite somebody in and say, here's a hot meal. That might go X, but you invite a guy that's been paddling upriver up against the tide on the Columbia all afternoon and evening in and you say, hey, man, here's a bowl of hot food and a bath. Oh, man, does it mean so much more to that person? So you have this opportunity to do more good for your good, you know, for your level of good, which is is nice to see. Yeah, I, I, I resonate a lot with that. I mean considering I was just out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the hot meal and good company meat goes a long ways. Yeah. And I think that we can feel that different levels, you know, based on where we've come from, what we've gone through. You know, so much of life really is that little magic. Oh, yeah. It's those being grateful for the little things in life. And something that has come to my mind recently is that the little magic really is the big magic. Oh, yeah. It's like, because those daily moments of just realizing, wow, you know, I'm out here uh, looking at this stream, watching the fish go by, you know, just studying things. And this is my job. This is what I do. Like those moments, you know, that could just happen within 10 seconds. But that's something so pure and beautiful about that. Or being out on the river and being able to just feel that sense of meditative peace. Yeah. And I think that's something that maybe is hard to understand until you're in it. Totally. You know, whether you're, you're doing a job that you love to do despite all the challenges, it's like that adversity is actually necessary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think what I would say to that is, you know, I think some of the, the most powerful magic that small magic does is convince you that it's small. You know, like the most impressive thing about those small moments is that, oh, you think to yourself, oh, this is a nice moment. Okay. But later, when you're having an absolutely terrible moment and you're torn apart for whatever reason, in your heart, you you can go back to that moment, this magical little moment in time that your brain saved. And that small magic can help you through the hardest parts of your life. Yeah. So it's really, it's big magic in disguise, you know. That's, the, that's how I like to think of it. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. I like that. And and so uh, tell me a bit more about uh, school for you. So you went to oh, yeah. LSU? I went to LSU. 
Yeah. Uh, Louisiana State University, I was, um, they have a couple of, Louisiana State University Agricultural and Mechanical School. Um, I went to the School of Renewable Natural Resources, and um, yeah, it was a majority forestry department that was uh, the big money maker for the natural resources department, but you know, you had conservation biology, and I specialized in fisheries and aquaculture. Um, after I graduated, I, you know, like I said, I went off and, and did stupid stuff with sharks, you know? <laughs> uh, I am... What was that like for you, you know? Because that, that is a very, like, leap of faith. Oh, yeah. Experience. It's been a theme throughout my podcast is this idea of the leap of faith. Oh, yeah. Going out into the unknown and, and almost having this, uh, this kind of experience where you are coming of age, like, you know, oh, yeah. from university being in that bubble that you were talking about totally to just being in the unknown. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, I knew going in that it was going to be kind of a, a whole new world for me, but I obviously had absolutely no concept of the far reaching implications of truly immersing yourself in a whole new world. South Africa, the, you know, you are immediately immersed in two languages, one of which is based on two languages that I'm partially, you know, tangentially familiar with hearing, you know, German and Dutch. And then you have this other language that has absolutely no base you've ever heard of. So when you hear it, you're like, ah, what? You know, and the culture yeah. is incredibly different. And obviously there is a history there that as a white person from America traveling abroad, you have to kind of read up on and understand yeah. your position. Even if you're only going to be there for a short period of time, it's important to learn this cultural stuff. You know, and so the act of learning all of that and the act of immersing myself in this world before I even got to the enormous apex predators with whom I would become very familiar, it's it's a shocking and I think I like the way you put it, Romanesque coming of age, you know, like it doesn't I don't think, you know, the 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 connotation of a coming of age situation is teenagers becoming adults, but really like we change and grow our whole lives. So I don't see why there there can't be a coming of age when you're 22 and you you're realizing that you're not a kid and you're also not quite the same as an adult yet. You know, you don't have not everyone, I should say, my own path. You're realizing you're not quite an adult, really. You know, you don't have the same response. I didn't have the same responsibilities that my dad had. My dad was 22. He had a wife and a kid and a job, you know, like yeah. I did not. I was, you know. I would say I'm, I'm blessed or lucky in that regard. I got to, to do other stuff. Um, I, I, you know, he, he gave me the, the fortitude to be able to, to travel this world a little, uh, a little alone at times. And that forces you to kind of, yeah, come up, come up and, and realize who you are and what matters to you and where your lines are. And yeah, that whole experience was truly molding even well after I returned to the States. Well, those transitions are really, amazing times of learning oh, yeah. because I think that often we feel it we feel that pressure building when you know there is a lot of insights and growth happening but it kind of feels like it's happening in a teapot yeah and our external environment isn't changing much but we're feeling that yeah. internal voice that's saying it's time it's time to do something different time to take that chance totally and when you do take that chance, it's almost like it gives you that opportunity to recognize yeah. all of all of the lessons and things that you've been wanting 
to challenge that you've been wanting to share. Oh, and, totally. Uh, test out like all those years of, of growth. But then if you're in yeah. that, you're in that bubble, all of a sudden you're out there swimming with great white sharks. It's like, okay, it's all theory. <laughs> I'm really in the present right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm living in this country, you know, South Africa It's completely different than my frame of reference. Yeah. Then you see how, you know, the slow change accelerates. Yeah. I, I like to think of it like a, I mean, it is very much to me like a, a chemical reaction. You know, the outside exterior doesn't necessarily change, but the inside, the, the ratios of different chemicals in this perfectly clear mixture are changing and altering each other until they reach a moment where you have a catalyst. Yeah. And then the exterior conditions and the interior conditions have reached parity and it is time for stuff to happen. Yeah. And that is, that is an exciting moment because you... you I mean, at least for myself, when I'm in those situations, it's hard for me to see A to B to C to D to E. It's it's like you only see E. And it doesn't matter what the trail between is. It could be A, orange, one, four, E, as long as you know you're going to E. And even if you never make it to E, even if you end up at, you know, G or Z down the road, like that that forward momentum, oh yeah. It's an exciting time, and uh, I, I hope to have more cycles of growth and transitional explosions throughout my life. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I like to see it in that way as well, you know, realizing that we can hit a prime in every decade. Yeah. We can, and renovating and having those renaissances in our life yeah. and new growth in our life is is really a, a product of the of those cycles of understanding and growing the inner world totally and then having that connect with our experiences in the outer world yeah and it's both are so powerful and so important and um you know i'm realizing that right now like i've had done journeys in the past um you know bicycled across the u.s when i was 21 and that was a powerful that was kind of my catalyst that was my south africa with the sharks yeah at that time in my life and that opened me up, opened my heart up and my mind and my art music up into a whole new world of possibilities. Yeah. And now, you know, I did Canoe the Mississippi yeah. and went into your your old stomping grounds. That's right. And that experience was its own world in itself. And, yeah. and each time it felt like this kind of impossible thing. Like it felt, it was scary, yeah. you know? And I think that recognizing that, Courage is not having no fear. Yeah. It's about being being scared and saying, that's okay. It's yeah. okay to feel this way, and I'm going to take that leap anyways. And, you know, whether that, yeah, like, clearly you've done that a few times in your life, whether that's swimming with sharks yeah. or going out and contending with wild animals, moving halfway across the country to start brand new. Yeah. Like, that, um, all of those transitions, like, that, it takes... It takes a lot to be able to step into the unknown. Oh yeah, you know, plunge into that cold pool of water, and uh, but the growth that comes from that is is uh, oh, so it's, valuable. It's it's huge. You know, it's like you you build a house. You know, let's say you you finish building a house when you're 18. 
you know, not this is obviously metaphorical. You build this metaphorical house inside yourself, and then as you go out and have experiences, you buy, you know, a kitschy souvenir from over here, or you stop at a, you know, a flea market and see a, a nice, you know, apothecary table, and you bring that in there, and soon over time, you know, you take a look back and you do some self-reflection, you know, at certain times and you look back and you realize the house you built at 18 looks completely different now. You know, you have yeah. all this stuff, all these experiences that you have accrued in this house. And yeah, I, it changes whether you want it to or not. And, and I think that self-reflection allows you to kind of help guide those changes a little bit. Maybe not a lot, because a lot of what happens to you, you know, externally is not in your control, and those change your house too, you know? Mm -hmm. But for the things that are in your control, yeah, being self-reflective and knowing that, like, hey, I'm at this this transitional phase. I just graduated, I'm young, I'm crazy, or, you know, for me it was, when I was 29, I was just really, really unhappy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that that's something that's... Uh, pretty relatable in the general way is sometimes you realize like my job makes me unhappy the city i live in makes me unhappy or this condition or this condition and sometimes you know for me particularly at this time it was a lot of conditions that were just making me really unhappy and you can try to make yourself happy with one thing or another you know and eventually you, you got to look around you got to look around and realize man maybe maybe i need to start making a new house you know and you take yeah. what you've got, you take what you want from that old house, the things you like, and, you know, some of the things you don't because they helped make who you are, and you go build a new house. And then you get this new transitional phase where I'm 29, 30 is the new 20, I got it, let's do it, you know? And it's those phases that um, that it's, it's impossible to miss but important to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, if you want something that you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. That's really good. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, and so, how old are you now? I am 33 years old. I will be 34 in August. Yeah. And so, what would you say is the biggest difference between you at 33 and you at 23? <sighs> and what are some of the things that you've carried with, that you've kept from that old house? Emotional maturity. Uh, and that, that is the answer to both. Uh, you know, recognizing when you're feeling an emotion and, and recognizing the cause of that emotion. Uh, it's probably the biggest difference between then and now, and it affects a whole lot of my life. You know, and in order to keep that emotional security, that emotional understanding that you have, you can't just take the cool, kitschy souvenirs that you bought and that you like. Like, you have to take the broken mirror or, you know, you've got to, you got to take the things that you don't necessarily love remembering because those are maybe the things that taught you how to deal with sorrow or how to be patient, you know? Um, yeah. The embarrassing times of our lives. Who dog. Yeah. The embarrassing <laughs> times The I drank too much and made a fool of myself times. You got to yeah. bring those with you because in the future, that's the moment that little small magic, that's the moment that's going to come back and say, Hey dog, I think you're good. You know, I think yeah. maybe, I think maybe you learn more lessons from it, uh, from some of the harder stuff than maybe some, from some of the easier ones. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely relatable. And I think that going through those moments where you feel like, ah, oh, how could I be more embarrassed? 
or how how could I've done that? But then through the, you know through the following years, being able to grow from that yeah. and then apply that, yeah, what you learn from that, that's where. In time, you start to realize that those things were just like you were saying are almost just as important, if not more important, oh, yeah. than the victories. Yeah, it is. It is the it is the beating hammer that shapes the metal. You know, it is it is hot fire and 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 tribulation that makes us who we are. The uh, the good times. That's the shine you put on the outside. That's the grind. You know, um, the easy stuff. You know, it's the hard stuff that that shapes kind of the huge parts, the chunks of who you are. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that are really, really shitty about aging, you know? I say that as somebody who works in a, in a pretty active field and, you know, like, you can feel his knees a little bit now, maybe more than he could at 23, you know? Feel that every now and again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the growth and maturity that are good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you just, you know more and you know what you don't know yeah more. and you know that like you can ask and who to ask and be like hey man i am lost and need some help you know yeah that's a big thing well yeah and who we are is not just us it's our community oh yeah you know and i think that's something i've learned a lot you know over the last 10 years is recognizing oh if i don't know something that well there's people out there that have spent their lives developing that area yeah. of knowledge or perspective that i reach out to yeah and more than often than not they'd be happy to share oh yeah oh yeah probably like most of the people i've met out here like good example is like fly fishermen you know like you start off fly fishing by buying your flies at the sportsman's warehouse you know but then you you find one old dude with a, a shop that's really just his garage and yeah, if you ask him for advice, if you have that uh, that particular set of fortitude and you ask him for advice, yeah, he'll tell you for hours. He'll give you all the information in the world because, yeah, when, when someone takes that long accruing knowledge, like, they're waiting for someone to ask for it. No one's going to judge you for asking for help or asking for knowledge. Like, most of the time, they will give it to you freely with a smile, you yeah. know? That's a, that's a beautiful realization. Yeah. Because I think, you know, going, being able to ask people is a gift for them too. Oh, yeah. Because then they get to share this lifetime of perspective. Yeah. And that sharing and receiving, that has its own magic. It builds its community. It builds the community. Like you just said, I, I liked how you said we are part of the community and the community is a part of us. So, yeah. like when Yeah. When you have that hour and a half long conversation in, you know, Bob's garage and you know you go back to him like now you know Bob and Bob knows you and y'all have that look in your eye that that nice friendly look that says like oh you're building that trust trust everything's fine yeah, yeah. exactly and then being able to unpeel the deeper layers yeah and because there's so much that we experience it's like we're living in invisible worlds yeah in some ways where you know, we, we interact with a lot of people on a certain level, but then we all have those deeper layers that oh, yeah. are just under the surface. And worlds within worlds, dimensions, that if you are willing to reach out or, 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 or to get there, yeah, there's so much to learn. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, that kind of complexity, it's, it's really nice. 
when you, you know, it, it's so easy for us to think of ourselves as the main character of our own story, and everyone else is an NPC with pre-programmed dialogue. I don't have to worry about anything. It's easier to feel like no one else is real. I'm I'm the one that they wrote the plot for. Yeah. Yeah, it's super easy to feel that way, but then you're you're gonna miss out on all these layers for other people, and yeah. oftentimes questions you have needs that arise all of these things that you can't necessarily take care of yourself are absolutely like you said they're available in the community and if you haven't taken the time to kind of peel some of those layers back and um you know understand people a little better then you may go through a much harder path not impossible i'm sure but a much harder path to acquire the same you know knowledge skill uh whatever it is you need widget yeah, well, you're not alone, and that that's a big part of it is realizing that a lot of our fears, a lot of the stuff that we go through, there's a lot of other people that feel that in their own yeah. unique way, and we have way more in common than we have different. Oh, yeah. And, and that's where we feel those fears, and it's okay. It's okay to feel that. You know, often yeah. I feel as though fear is a friend that's, oh, yeah. that we is misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah. I would definitely agree with that because there are times where fear might be the only thing that occurs to you. It might be the only thing you have to keep you um, sharp in a situation. You know, if you if you are feeling fear, it obviously there's you know the old adages like if you're feeling fear, it means you're doing something right. You know, things like that. But <laughs> well, we came from an environment where for hundreds of thousands of years we lived sitting around campfire telling stories, yeah. and then going out there with large predators coming after us. Yeah. Like, it was not an easy life. Large predators, that, like, we don't have the knowledge, of, like, especially it always, this is, I know it's tangential, but, like, I, I did some anthropology classes in college, and it always made me lose focus on the professor to think about early cave, you know, early, early peoples, because they were so nomadic, you know? So you'd go, you know, they'd go from one area to the next, and, and you might start seeing mega predators that you don't even have a name for that your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather didn't even know existed and it's not like you can google what is this rhinoceros in front of me like you just see this horrible thing with a giant <laughs> spear on its face you know like the to to think about that era of discovery like unintentional discovery just walking 10 feet to the left is a place no one's ever been yeah that always that always distracted me from any worthy subject in school. <laughs> well, that that off actor of contending with the unknown oh, yeah. and contending with what could possibly decimate you. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a powerful human mechanism oh, yeah. that we can harness today in different ways. Yeah, and that's how I feel. Like even being out on the river, like it's not like I have this giant beast coming out to spear me, but yeah. Like, the Columbia is a beast. Yeah. Yeah, dog. Some of, some of those ships are beasts. <laughs> yeah. And so when I'm out there and, and it's like, whoa, this is a lot bigger water than I thought it was, or these boats are a lot bigger than I thought, thought they yeah. were, and going through that adrenaline, and on the other side of that, and we talked about this before, but there's that baseline. Yeah. There's that baseline that's established where all of a, all of a sudden what was the extreme or what was intense, you're like, oh, I got this. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be okay. Now I'm comfy at this level, 
and I, I listeners, I'm putting my hand here, <laughs> and then you get more. You can go higher. You can go above that next time and push yourself farther. And it's it's not the same push that it was before you got to that that level. I, yeah. And I bet you felt that going in the water with you know great white sharks. Oh yeah, that's no. not a normal thing. Like I'm yeah. sure the one the primordial part of your brain is like, <laughs> what am I doing yeah. right now? There's a Volkswagen V Dub bus headed at me right now. Yeah, it's uh. Yeah, very much so. And, and it, it's the time, and those are the times that make impressions on you. The ones that quite literally make a, a fear imprint on you. Like, when you slow back down and you yeah. breathe out again and you realize, like, okay, I can handle this. What's the next step? That next step just takes you to new and better and more exciting places. Yeah. And, uh, that the doors that are open from that yeah and uh i i resonate a lot with that because i think that our brains because we live in such a safe environment so much of the time now so many problems come from us overthinking things that don't that aren't actually going to harm us yeah because we evolved to deal with real adversity in all kinds of its forms and that fear kept us alive yeah and then now, you know, we live in an environment where most of the time we're going to be fine, but our brain, that part of our brain is like... The fear is still active. It's still active. It still wants yeah. to be fed. It still wants to help. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to give it a big hug and say, hey, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, this. bud. It's just the internet. Yeah. yeah. We, got, <laughs> we got this. Yeah. You know, and that that's what's nice about almost confronting real danger. Yeah. In some ex- to some extent, because then it allows that part of your brain to remind it realigns it. Yeah. To saying like, "Hey, this is this is something that you can actually chew on." Yeah. Like chew on this bone. You don't have to worry about. This is a good fear. <laughs> like this is a fear that you should fear. Go ahead. Go crazy. <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. be helpful. Yeah. Know? And then the rest of you can relax and be like, "Okay." Yeah. You know, I can I can think. And think clearly or emote and feel exactly. whatever it is I need to feel. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's that's such a, a challenge in the, our modern era right now oh, yeah. is how do we actually reduce the amount of anxiety and overthinking about things that totally we don't need to worry about so much. While also being able to focus on the things that are actually going to help us. Exactly. You know, and it's, I'm the first person, you know, and, and I'm the first person to think, uh, to, to admit this, but like sometimes the, the easier place for me to mentally spend time is in a canyoned river. I don't know how I'm going to get out. I'm close to closing time. So my boss is going to be wondering where I am and. Everything is wrong. In that moment, all of your choices in the world become, okay, what is the one right choice? How do I get out of this safely and efficiently? And that is easier for me than the fear that I have. Like, I recently bought a truck. Like, I went to a bank and asked someone for more money than I've ever seen in my life and had them do i did paperwork and for me that kind of fear was 
I don't know. It, it did exactly what we're talking about. It helped me grow. It helped me get the truck that I want. You know, that kind of fear put me in the moment for those things. But it made me far more uncomfortable than the fear of like, okay, all I have to do is is tie this rope around this tree, and then I, I'll, I, even if I fall, I'll, you know, just bruise myself, whatever the case may be. But, yeah, the different kinds of fear, it, it helps you understand and mitigate bad reactions in those times. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm grappling with this concept of fear as a friend. I, I really liked you said that, and that's been in my head since you said it, because it really does make sense. Like, it, it's not like that when your brain was starting, like, A, it's obviously not perfect, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's not like they were like, okay, all right, all right, now I'm going to put in this emotion that completely ruins everything and makes them die. Ha, ha, ha. Like, yeah. no, it's, it's got a purpose. You're totally right. Yeah, and, and, you, and you touched on this earlier already. It keeps you sharp. Yeah. And I think that without fear and going through that fear, we wouldn't have that joy and gratitude at that same level. Yeah. Like we need to be challenged and, and fear is an important ingredient totally. to allow us to be challenged. Cause if we're just staying safe our whole lives, that's a, that I think that is significantly more difficult in the oh, long yeah. run than, um, jumping into whatever it is out of our own comfort zones. Yeah. Like trying to find the safest route is always so much more like complex and and unnerving like like the fact that you are making decisions out of fear to avoid fear it's like wait a minute no you're <laughs> you're you're just doing it in a different way it's yeah it's definitely uh it's something to grapple with fear as a helper is uh is something i'm just it's gonna stick with me for a while tour i got no got no problem telling you that <laughs> <laughs> well good i'm uh, i have a lot of time to think about these things that's for sure <laughs> i bet so so about the river, what is it about the Columbia and this? Because you spent a lot of time out in the woods here yeah. with the wildlife and, and the plants and hiking. And, and I know that gives you a lot of personal peace yeah. and joy. What, is, what does the landscape here mean to you? And what are the things that you care about? What are some of the things you're concerned about? Yeah. Well, it means who, boy. Well... You know, I grew up in kind of a, a timeshare with nature. You know, being a Boy Scout but living in a city like New Orleans, you know, one weekend a month, you generally pick up your stuff with your dad and you go camping. You know, and that's your that's your exposure to the natural world. It's this this place you'd rather be, you know. And when you start making it your life and your goals, and now it's a place that I spend a majority of my time... It does give me a perspective, and um, you know it's it's gonna it's all we have left that's gonna last forever, you know, assuming mm. we treat it properly. But even without us, it'll it'll keep rolling. Um, it's like Ozymandias, the poem, you know, two vast, you know, in a vast desert, two trunkless legs of stone stand, you know, it's this this memorial built for a a, a tyrannical king is dust. It's dust. It's all dust. So it's one of my favorite poems. I'm yeah. really glad you mentioned that. It's it's the <laughs> only thing that we have that's that's gonna be around and, and and apart from legacy, it is the only thing bigger than us that is also a part of us. 
it is so incredibly important that we take care of it and treat it properly. And it's one thing to say that, you know, it's one thing to, to say that and then, you know, oh, I recycle, I take care of things. It's like, well, yeah, but the biggest recyclables are corporate polluters. You know, that's the biggest problem, you know. But, like, mm-hmm. it... There's the, layers. There's exactly, levels. exactly. The perspective that, that the daily work in the world gives me is that I want people to understand that the natural world doesn't have to be a place that you visit once a month. It's It's everywhere. It's what you do, you know. Like, my tasks are to go out and monitor fish. That's what I do, you know, but there are some people who go out and monitor birds and that's their job. But also, obviously, we have accountants and bankers and how do they interact with the natural world in all the same ways, you know, appreciate it, go out and just be a part of it. Study after study after study have told you that green spaces are not only beneficial, but necessary for your mental, you know, chill, <laughs> for having a good, a good atmosphere on things. And so I, I look at, 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 the, at the natural world and time spent in the natural world as equally um, a balm and a salve uh, for us, for our souls, you know, but also a precious Fabergé egg that we desperately need to take better care of. You know, and that's that's kind of the dual perspective, both micro and macro, that spending every day kind of gives you this this angst for making it better and making it last and improving and helping and, and you know, saving everything at a time, you know, one at a time as best you can. That's the one thing. And then on the other aspect is being a part of it, you know, and not forgetting that, yeah, it's your job to help take care of it, but also it's your job to enjoy it. It's your job to be a part of it and to feel good in it, you know? Well, you have a way with words. That is beautiful. <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, how about, where does Longview fit in all this? Oh, boy. Man, Longview is uh, affordable. That's about it. Uh, you know, I, I lived in Kathlamet previously, which has a population, according to Wiki on the last census, of like 561 people. I don't think that's necessarily true now, but it is still well, now very. Now five hundred and sixty. Yeah, it is now. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I've left. No, uh, it, it's it's a it's a small town with a very close relationship with the natural world because you have no other option. Uh, Longview, and that felt great. I loved it. Problem was, rent on a one bedroom place is nine hundred and fifty bucks a month, whereas here in Longview, I've moved in with my girlfriend Grace, who I. I could not be happier to have moved in with. We have a dog and a cat and all of that for about 1100 in a two-bedroom, you know. So Longview is a, a necessary evil, you know. It's, uh, you got to stay here. It's not a pretty place. It's it's not filled with uh, necessarily a whole, a whole cadre of people with whom I agree with on every issue. Um, you know, food space-wise, it's super hard to find healthy, diverse food. But at the same time, it's it's where I'm at, and it's where uh, it's where I live that allows me to have the other aspects of my life I love. It's like we talked about earlier with your job. You can either do a job you don't necessarily love for the money to help pay for the hobbies. That's kind of what Longview is. Longview allows me to have the job that I want, you know, in the boonies. 
it allows me to afford to not only have the job I want, but also have the activities I enjoy. You know, I, I have a really nice computer I like to play my games on, and every week I play D&D with my friends, and Longview allows me to do that, even if it is not necessarily, you know, the ideal place to be. Yeah, and uh, I noticed that compared to a lot of other towns, Longview's separated from the river in yeah. a certain way. And it seems like it's intriguing to me that there's all this beautiful wilderness around here, mm-hmm. but it seems to be that the town is kind of separated from it. In, in and I my... wonder if that has something to do with the disconnect. Oh, it's even it's even more stark than that. If you look on the maps, the the separation between Longview proper and the river is forest products. All of the strip along the river that goes all the way front of Rainier and back, it's all pulp mills and wood processing plants and everything else because of the easy access and offloading and onloading of supplies uh, from the river. So not only do the people who live in Longview not necessarily have that thin layer between the natural world and their world like they do in Kathlamet, it is blockaded, it is embargoed by people who are cutting down trees and and don't get me wrong man i love like i use toilet paper i live in a house with wooden walls like i totally get multiple use sustained yield as a way of being a compromise between you know cutting everything down and making everything out of wood and never touching a tree i understand that we have to have it but oh man seeing it does suck and i think that there has to be some sort of um there's a there's a connection between that and the disconnect that I think a lot of folks in Longview experience between the natural world and themselves. You know, you have to go somewhere to get to the natural world. It's not right there. I can't open my window and look at it. You have to go somewhere else, which puts you kind of separate from that place. And once you make that separation, it's tougher and tougher to make connections back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because... Some waterfronts are really, like, just beautiful. You, yeah. People are down, right down there. You can see the town right from the river. Yeah. And uh, it makes makes me wonder if they did improve the development of the waterfront, if that would change the dynamic of the town. Totally. You know, and it's, it's kind of, you know, a, a pretty visual example of this is where you rode up last night on Willow Grove Park. Willow Grove Park is in a really nice area of Longview. It is a separate island with beautiful homes and an amazing park with the whole park is lined with beautiful sandy beaches right up to the Columbia. It is gorgeous. And cost of living there is super high because people love, whether they know it or not, people love that closeness with the world around. Living right next to the pulp mills, rent super low because it smells like a pulp mill and everything is dejected. I I totally, totally agree that if if they were to put some kind of, you know, development into making green spaces more than just like Sacagawea Park down the road, which is, I mean, from a fish expert point of view, it's it's three big ugly puddles they dug in the ground and put some half-formed gardens around, like... Yeah, it's a green space, technically. But there is a 
skill as well as an art to yeah. incorporating those spaces exactly. into an urban environment. Exactly. And even even more so than that, like when you have a space like I mean, I've been in some beautiful parks, like you'll see, I mean, I don't know if you've been um, to City Park in New Orleans, like huge oak trees and a big pond full of birds. And yeah, it's not it's not a natural space. But it is, because it feels that way. The trees yeah. are old and it feels like a natural it's place. It's well soul. done. It's good for the soul. You know, but a, a non-natural space that's just been shoehorned into the urban environment, it feels like a um, feels like a photocopy of the Mona Lisa. Like, yes, you can see the Mona Lisa, and yes, you can even zoom in and, and see the see the brushstrokes, just like on the real thing. But there is a a flatness, a a a lack of fullness that makes it a photocopy and not the real thing. So I think, I think it's difficult. And the more that you can incorporate, the more that you can incorporate just bringing the natural world from where it is directly to the people, way better. You know, like improving your local resources and directly engaging with the world in a, in a, in a tactile way is always going to be better than, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because in some ways, yes, creating and curating some of that urban landscape and yeah. greenery is, is very important and valuable. But at the same time, having access to actual wilderness and wild places, yeah. it's a really important part of that equation that um, increasing access to that and developing a culture yeah. within a place that wants to be connected to the landscape. Exactly. Education. You know, like the idea that the woods are a scary place full of monsters, it, it's not an old idea. It's, it's, I mean, okay, yeah, it's old. It's kind but of it's, a pioneer perspective. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's from the Middle Ages. That's when all these monsters came about. Werewolves and all these other stories and tales, they started coming about in the Middle Ages because parents didn't want their kids running off and playing in the woods because if you got a scratch, you would die, much less people just abducting you. We don't have those things to be so afraid of anymore, but the stories still impact our culture and still keep people from experiencing these places. So mm. a big part of getting the natural world back into our lives is education at a small child level. Like, young age, start saying, hey, here's a spider, hold it in your hand. And then all of a sudden it seems silly to them to be afraid of spiders, which is like one of the biggest phobias out there. And it's a taught phobia. It's something we give our children. It's like, ah, don't touch me. It's like, no, it's fine. It's tiny. It's got itty bitty little teeth. It's fine. It's everything to be fine. You know, the education at that level and, and exposing them to this, this natural world, to this, um, this thin veil between our urban environment and, and the place that we came from. It's super important to getting them interested later. Like, I, I thank the Boy Scouts for that. I, I have been a Boy Scout since I was in first grade. Like, that early exposure to the world is why I am sitting in Longview, Washington, having just come off a shift doing a job for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. It, it is a one-to-one -one connection. It is directly correlated. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I really appreciate that insight because a big part of this podcast for me is to sh not only highlight the things that are working within communities, the things that are 
beautiful about communities, but yeah. also perhaps some of the challenges and the things that could be improved. And I like how constructive you are in that you acknowledge <laughs> that Longview has its weaknesses, yeah. but then you're also uh, providing insight into how that could be improved. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, recently we actually had some high school kids in Kath Lamet come out and join us for a day of work, you know, and to see these kids interact and smile and ask really great questions that showed that they were not only like just paying attention, but engaging with the topics, you know, it, it really, it, it, it set off a bell in my head for, for what we really need to kind of focus on. And obviously, I mean, education is the silver bullet for nearly every single cultural issue that you, that you can come up with. It is, we give our biases good and bad to kids, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's very easy to instill a fear without trying, you know? So I think, I think the important thing, especially like if you're talking about Longview specifically, the important thing is it, it needs to be two approaches. You need to have an approach for people who are ready to interact with that world, like myself and you, like put some cool parks, like five minutes outside of town on some of these surrounding hills and show me some cool stuff. Doesn't have to be much. Dog trail would be nice, you know? And then for kids, it, it, it's got to be a direct tactile getting dirty in the woods, you know? Nothing, fill, at least for myself, when I was growing up, nothing filled me with more joy and glee than coming home filthy head to toe and having my mother be angry at me for it. Because <laughs> it wasn't a real anger. It was like, ah, you know? Your dad's excited. He's like, hey, you had a good day. You're filthy, you know? That, <laughs> that kind of interaction with the world is, is missing in a lot of urban environments. Yeah, well, I, it's interesting how little an investment monetarily it really would be yeah. to create quite large change oh, yeah. socially and from uh just from a soul level too and that's something that we don't talk about enough i feel i feel like it's it's part of like what feeds your soul like totally what is nutritious to your spirit yeah what's cheetos and what's a what's a healthy meal yeah, yeah and and people can define what spirit is to them but it's totally. that it's that synthesis between the intellectual and emotional well-being oh, yeah. and physiological well-being of saying where where those intersect there's going to be some things that are able to touch all those bases totally and you know clearly for you and for me a connection to wilderness is able to do that yeah and i think there is that connection to almost every human being on the planet oh, yeah. where if they are spending time out in the woods connecting with animals and nature where, where do people take all their selfies, you know? Exactly. They want to take them on top of a mountain yep. or in a park somewhere. Like, it's always nice to have green growing things oh, yeah. or or animals around. And it's, uh, yeah, that being able to address that disconnect, it, it could be surprisingly affordable. Oh, yeah. Considering the positive impacts that you know, developing better green spaces, access to Just wild places. Light pollution. That would be one that would not be extremely expensive for a, a city government. Now, granted, enforcement is its own issue with that sort of, you know, honor rule sitch. But, yeah, light pollution in cities blocks out stars. Obviously, we all know this. But what also blocks out is our is looking up at the sky and just becoming silently captivated by the sheer tininess of who you are. 
You know, like, mm. even in Kath Lamet, being as small as it is, you look up at the night sky and you see as many as... I, I, I forget the figure, but it's something like 600 and something stars is all the eyes can take in, but there's way more than that up there. So when you look up and mm. you can see the vast majority of this world or when you're in a truly wilderness place and you can see the Milky Way, it is a universal experience to just sit down. Revel. Be quiet and exactly revel in it. Just... I'll get goosebumps. Enjoy how tiny you really are. Because if you've convinced yourself your whole life you're the main character of this video game and everyone else is an NPC and then you see the stars, it's really hard to focus only on yourself. Yeah. Focusing on everyone else is how we get better. So. Well, and that's the irony of the universe in many ways is that you know si we're simultaneously this vast being you know, created over billions of years of evolution, and we're not even one thing in ourselves. We're collective. Yeah. A collective of hundreds of billions of cells. And, and you know, there's more atoms in our body than there are stars in the known universe. Oh, yeah. But then there's more stars in the known universe than there are grains of sand on Earth. Yeah. And so that, that polarity, I find, is just fascinating because we are vast and important within a certain context. And, and incredible and a miracle and there's yeah. magic. I mean, even a blade of grass is just incredibly unique, incredible. Yeah. If you really look at it, if you really look at a blade of grass or one river, or one town, or even one piece of art, yeah. like it, there's so much magic in it, just that it even exists at all. Oh yeah. But then, like you said, you look up at the night sky and there's just this beauty in being able to release that stress of feeling as though there's all this pressure on us to be. To be somebody or to be exactly. that what's happening right now is of utmost importance. It's like, well, that's a self-created pressure. Exactly. And while it's a miracle and life is, is beautiful, we are just this one small piece of a yeah. much, much greater whole that is beyond what we can even perceive. And, you know, and it's, it's important that both what, it's important that both you, what you and I said are, are realized in the same moment or at least in the same person over time is that yes the stars should make you feel small and realize your place in this universe but also it should make you feel unique and amazing and like you can do something because you can yeah. like in this huge vast universe of utter chaos where where chaos reigns you can do something like you can affect change you can go out and change even if it's just your community, you know, even if you go out and you go to a public hearing and you're like, hey, I want to talk about light pollution and everyone in the room laughs at you, like, that's fine because they'll, there will be... It's planting a seed. Exactly. Planting a seed. There will be one person who even a tiny bit goes, well, it would be nice to see the stars again. And that, yeah. that is incremental change. Now, I understand that a lot of the topics that, that are really relevant today are not topics on which incremental change is something that's acceptable. But when we're talking about the natural world, we're kind of lucky. Because while we are <clears throat> vastly going through it quickly and the, the future is, is you know, up in the air, mm -hmm. it will still be there. Yeah, It's going to be there and it's going to wax and wane and recover from us. And really, in the fullness of time... The only things we are hurting with our actions here are ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's not 
the the planet is hurting. It is, but the it will heal. The planet will heal. But do we want to be a part of it? Exactly. Do we want to be a part of that healing process? Do we want to guide it? Do we want to find a way to achieve a parity between our use and how much we give back? You know, that's the you know when you're in school for natural resources, they give you like the the spectrum of um, usage guidelines. You know, like I mentioned earlier, it goes from conservation, which is touch nothing, cut nothing. Like this is how, you know, the natural world should remain the way it is and we should do nothing to it. Obviously, with an increasing population every year, that's impossible. You can't never do anything. And also, you shouldn't have the aspect on the other end of the spectrum, which is, okay, everything is usable by us because we are the stewards, so I'm going to cut down that tree, and I'm going to kill that endangered tiger, and I'm going to make a coat and a house not in that order. You know, like, it, it, either end of the spectrum is ridiculous. So you find yourself in the middle with multiple use and sustained yield. So we're trying to have multiple outlets and this is this is actually very close to the WDFW's um, motto you know we're trying to to have multiple different ways in which we both use and improve and preserve the natural world for all kinds of constituents from you know at the top of our list we have the tribes you know like obviously we have some work to do to make up for all of the stuff we've taken from these people so they are number one in our constituency. They're in there, you know, um, number one on my list. And then you've got recreational fishermen and recreational hunters and conservationists, bird watchers, school kids, trying to manage for all these different groups and bring them together so that you can all use the same environment. You can all use, you know, you can all have a house built with Appreciate wood frames. It. Exactly. But you still have a place to go and soak in some of that old world you know that good earthy mossy scent you know yeah, i really like that and and i resonate a lot with that because yeah. i love the natural world but i also love humanity yeah and i, I believe in people we could be super dope yeah like when can. given the chance <laughs> we can be like yeah don't get me wrong we blow it often but like we can be super dope too yeah and and i don't i don't necessarily ascribe to this apocalyptic environmentalism perspective sure the world's world's gonna end in 20 years like that to me i find that to be hyperbolic and not necessarily helpful sure. while i do believe there's real challenges that we yeah. need to face i believe that we have the capacity to change oh yeah you know um i'm not sure if you're familiar with this anecdote but i think it was the 50s or 60s india was starving couldn't feed itself didn't have enough money, population exploding. No one knew what to do. Everyone was writing well-researched scientific articles from incredibly intelligent people all about how we were about to see massive death in India because no one could feed them. Along comes a man named Norman Borlaug who won the Nobel Peace Prize for developing a genetically modified wheat crop called dwarf wheat. So instead of in the Indian environment where the wheat would grow too high and then lean on itself and die, dwarf wheat was shorter. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, after planting and all this stuff, yeah. all of a sudden India is no more in this, this famine situation. Now they're, they have everything they need. And it's that, kind of, it's that kind of innovation that we can't see coming because it's, it's, a, it's a eureka. It's a moment 
We shouldn't depend on that. We shouldn't depend on a deus ex machina. But humans are capable of these great things. They are capable of taking huge strides in a short period of time. And so I agree with you. I don't, I don't like the framing of everything is broken. There's no way to fix it. And this is all your fault. First of all, it might be their fault, but that ain't helping anybody when you go around just talking about that. Like, we'll yeah. talk about that once the world is out of, is not on fire anymore. Let's work on the fire first. Yeah. You know? And there's things, that, there's actionable things that we can actionable do. Actionable things that need that we need to do, you yeah. know? And that... It, and if it, we break it down piece by piece, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so impossible. Exactly. And, you know... Uh, as much as I love, oh boy, do I love holding people accountable when they did something wrong. But, you know, when you're in a real emergency situation, when you are in a, in a red flag, popping a flare, everything's wrong situation, the first step, which we are, the first step is not to say, all right, who lit the fire? You jump off the boat first. No, man, like, put out the fire do everything you can, you know, like Norman Borlaug, like we did to put a man on the moon. You do what you have to do, and you fix this situation in which you find yourself. And then, once the bill comes up, then you talk to who to blame, you know? <laughs> Going at it, and not to mention another uh, unfortunate side effect of that uh, eco-apocalypse situation is people get upset, and, and, and they, get, uh, they feel helpless, they feel like they yeah. can't do anything because the world's ending. I yeah. heard it on CNN. They told me it's 20 years. I'll be dead before the world ends. You know, or I'll, I'll be, you know what I'm saying? Like it removes that urgency to do something, you know? Yeah. So I think it is important that we take, we take a, a, a firm stock of where we are and then start moving. Just, you know, like... NGOs are the ones that are leaning, that are leading the the charge here. Non-governmental organizations are putting their time, effort, and skill into fixing a lot of the problems that we have, and that's because they're more nimble and more quick than governmental organizations. They're not beholden to anyone, so they can start that work. And we need to look at that aspect of doing things. We need to look at that way they're doing it, that swift, on the ground, getting it done mentality. And even if we don't agree with the individual project that's going on, we need to take that 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 urgency and apply it to real solutions that we can do yeah well i liked a lot about what you said in regards to nature is a powerful force that's going to be here you, despite what we've done and of course there is a lot that we've done oh yeah but its ability to heal yeah is something that i think we underestimate and really it's like what do, do we want to continue to be part of this world and yeah. to continue that continue building this relationship because if we if we do it in the right way it can be a beautiful partnership oh my gosh yeah like when you look at the multiple use sustained yield way of looking at things what you're really saying is like i want to I, you know you can even like adjust the ratios if i if you want to put in you know put in x and take out x that's great you're even if you want to put in x and take out x plus one if you're doing it right it should still be okay as long as you don't get greedy which is where we're at now. I got a little greedy. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I, I think that there is there is a future in which we can take care of this, but people need to realize that we're not talking about the end of the planet in, in 20 years or whatever figure people use. We're talking about the end of humans on the planet. 
Like, if you want to be a part of this world recovering, like you said, we need to be active. Yeah. If, if you've given up hope, well, dude, planet's going to bounce back. We have many, many examples of, of scientific research that have been done on the Younger Dryas and all the different ice Six ages. Blue. Yeah, exactly. All the different cycles that we've been through for life on this planet. And it's, we're not talking about the end of the planet. Or even all the animals on the planet. Yes, a lot will suffer. But guess what? Over time, there will be more. Those ecological niches will be filled again. They will be filled. They will come back. Darwin's finches will once again branch out in a thousand directions and become everything. You know? Yeah. Uh, metaphorically, obviously. <laughs> you know, that's, um, it's whether or not we want to be a part of it. And yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of the way that... I don't know. I would, I would try to explain that to someone who wants to play the blame game more than pick up a hammer and start working. And what, do you, and what do you say to someone who loves, loves the environment, they want to have a more optimistic view on what's going on, and they want to they do something that you know, could, could help? Yeah. You know, it's, the small things are good, and we should all do them. You know, recycling is good, but obviously the, anytime you say recycling is good to somebody who's even a modicum informed, their first response is, well, yeah, but clearly the biggest problem here is the corporations and they're not recycling so me is just a drop in the bucket sure but who do you want to be how do you like who do you want to be yeah i know some of the stuff feels small it does but i want to be the guy who did my part and if you want to do more get a job in the field man roll up your sleeves it volunteer for an ngo volunteer for an ngo in your area i guarantee if you look up environmental ngos in my area there is something nearby where they're doing a restoration project where they're trying to pull up in a local environment in quality cut out different invasive species etc or if you don't want to volunteer or if you don't want to interact with other people i totally get that i have those days myself go pick up trash <laughs> Go pick up trash yeah. uh, in a place that's beautiful that no one uses because it's filled with garbage. There are a couple of places like that in Longview. Go pick up trash and maybe people will use them and then maybe people will put money into them and maybe they'll become better. Well, and that's a clear, an easy and clear way of making something better when you pick up garbage in an yeah. area. It's like, it really is like night and day. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, it's an area that people want to enjoy. Like, if a park's full of garbage, people aren't going to go there. But then once it's picked up, yeah, all of a sudden, people are enjoying the park. Kids are out there. Yeah. And There's, then, like, this multi-generational appreciation for the land. And it's a landslide, you know, because then people use it a little bit. And then mothers are like, oh, well, that play, that play area, it's kind of old and ratty. We should talk to the city council. And the city council's like, yeah, thousand bucks to make some constituents happy. Let's do it. And all of a sudden, because you went out weekly and picked up trash and people started using this park, now they're getting a new play structure. And they're like, oh, well, this new play structure is collecting a whole lot of trees, you know, a whole lot of sap from these trees. What do we do? Oh, well, let's, let's move them. Let's put them over here. Let's put more trees in. Let's take these out and put a bunch over here, you know, like, yeah. It, it, it is a cascading effect. Um, and that's that's what you're looking for on an individual level, especially like, you know, you, you asked what can people do? It's like, find that small thing. Find that small thing and find a new one next time and find a new one next time and a new one next time. You might be surprised at that butterfly effect. Exactly. And and the important, the, the most important thing to hold on to as a person, especially if you lean more towards the conservation end of that spectrum, 
is not to lose hope. Yeah. It's not to give in to that apocalyptic way of thinking. It is not to think, what is me recycling even doing? Not a lot, bud. Obviously. But that doesn't mean you don't do it. But the but the ethic of how that makes you feel and makes and has and the way that helps you care. Yeah. About about the natural world and about our relationship with it. That that ethic, that yeah. value might end up becoming a catalyst in yeah. that moment where all of a sudden uh, the city's trying to figure out how to develop their green spaces. Yeah. If they want to protect that river, you'll be there. Ethic becomes passion. Passion becomes inspiration. And not necessarily for the same person. This small thing that you do daily builds that ethic in you. And that ethic grows into a passion. And that passion is obvious to everyone around you. That passion inspires other people. And it inspires you. So, yeah, that small thing you do might lead to something so much bigger. And that's that's the goal when you're a small actor on a big stage is, is trying to make someone feel anything so that they can then take that inspiration, turn it into an ethic, and then a passion, and then an inspiration. The cycle begins anew. You know? Wow. Wow. Well, you have a very positive way of approaching the world and i resonate <laughs> with that because i i aspire to do that myself yeah and where where does that come from you you just have this you have this joy and this yeah. light that comes from you and um, i'm curious of where that man it's it's uh it's all over there's a lot you know i'd be remiss if i didn't say that i mean i'm blessed you know and it, and, and if that's not the word you like then lucky as hell is, a, is an apt description as well, where seeking joy can be a huge part of it, you know? I, I would never have been able to leave the South if I didn't have a good support group and a good... And it doesn't have to be family. Not everybody's family is all in their stuff, you know? Not everybody's family is as supportive, but friends, community, as we said, pulling back those layers and having people who are close to you and who can lift you up and then you can lift them up. And that... That buoyancy allows me personally to seek joy every day. You know, I when I go to work, there are always obviously aspects that I that I don't like. Nettles, for example, <laughs> not an enormous fan. I understand they can make a tea. I don't like them. I don't like them, and I never will. But, but it's important when your legs are buzzing from a you know a bunch of nettles you just walked through to find the joy because I can, because I am lucky in that way that I have the world around me. So where does that joy come from? That joy is a reflection of everything else. That joy, it, it comes from within me, but at the same time, it's, it's less of a shine and more of a, less of a sun and more of a moon situation. I'm reflecting the joy that is out there. Um, and that is because I have, the luck to be able to shine that mirror every day, you yeah. know? Well, when I, when I hear you say luck, I, what I, what I see in here is gratitude. Yeah. And I think that that's that, that is that portal that allows that inner and outer worlds to come together. That was, that was really well observed because I think you're entirely right. And I'd never thought about that, but I think a lot of when I refer to luck is, is gratitude to, to they, Gratitude to an unknown. Gratitude to all of the people who've helped me or who I have been able to benefit from. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. 
and that's such a and I think that's such a catalyst and key that we often can overlook it's it's like the things that are right in front of us that we can take for granted totally and then all it takes is just that the way that we perceive what we have all of a sudden that little magic yep becomes big magic again oh yeah big bang yeah well it's been so awesome talking with you chris i've really enjoyed it man yeah so this is a question i like to ask at the end of of all these interviews and if you had one year left to live what is it that you would do and, and why hmm man it would be so easy to say like oh i'd volunteer yeah i know i've lived such a good life for myself that i'd go and volunteer but no nah, i think if i had one year left i would I would go around to every single family member that I have because I have a big family and I would ask them what their one bucket list item is. And I would go do that with them. Like that would be my bucket list would be to do all their bucket list stuff. Because as I get older, I realize that like I can bring myself joy with a Steam game or just a good book. Like, I can do that. Walk in the woods. Yeah, but there's nothing like the volume, the pure deluge of joy you get from facilitating someone else's joy. So I would, in a very selfish way, try to be altruistic. I would try to help other people achieve their dream so that I can feed off of that joy in my most desperate times. That's cool. I haven't heard that answer yet. I like that. I like that. Because you're right. When you when you have that ability to open yourself into someone else's world. Yeah. Love is one of those beautiful things where the more you give, the more you end up having. Yeah, and it makes no sense. And it, it's, it's so easy to think, I don't know, man. I don't want to give this away. But like, yeah, give it away, dude. See what happens. It's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, awesome talking with you, man. Absolutely, bud. You have a good day. You too. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Journey to the Heart podcast. For regular updates about my canoe journey across America, my music and other creative projects, be sure to check out my Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube pages at Torlokes and Tornlokes. Don't forget the silent H. You can also follow my journey and join my mailing list at www.tornlokes.com.